Welcome to episode 261 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. Our special guest on the show today is returning friend Daniel Harvey, who is head of product design and brand at The Dots, which is a professional network for no-collar professionals. Dan, welcome back. Hey, great to be back. For our podcast this week, we're going to chat about the jobs of the future for creative folks. Let's start with uh, digging a little bit into the current state of uh, interaction design, UX, and and creative jobs generally. There are a number of uh, uh, both technology trends and design trends that are converging in interesting ways uh, that sort of set the stage for for what we think future jobs might look like. Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking about lately, both in terms of design and technology trends that will be affecting our future jobs? Sure, happy to. I, th- I think for my mind, when people sort of ask me about where creative jobs are, are potentially going in the future, uh, or when people like me are asked that generally, we, we tend to think this, uh, we tend to have this weird myopic thing where we think, our own fields are a little bit more stable than uh, neighboring fields. Uh, and, that's true. And I don't know if that's, I don't necessarily think that that's ego or, or even a sense of security, uh, although it might be those things uh, in some cases. I think it's that uh, changes happen incrementally uh, and they get internalized quickly. So I think, you know, when you guys asked me to, to think about this, I decided to try to look at my own field uh, critically and think about a few factors that are driving change already uh, that, that could have more momentum as time goes on. And, and I think first and foremost, oh, sorry, go ahead, John. Yeah, I, I'm totally guilty of of that, um, not thinking that things are going to change, even though I, that's all I think about is technology and how that can affect us. I rarely think, oh, what should I be thinking about next? I'm completely guilty of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I said, I, I think we just sort of tackle it as it comes. Um, and so we don't always see the change for what it is as it's happening. Uh, but, but I think, you know, when we, when we think about our own tribe, you know, interaction designers, UX designers, uh, John Maida calls us computational designers, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think we've got a few natural tendencies that all have already helped us deal with career changes, and I think they'll only continue to help us. Uh, so, so I think first and foremost, we're, we're sort of perpetually curious. We're always on the lookout for new skills, new tools, new approaches. Uh, and I think if there's any connective tissue that ties us all together, if there's anything that's our sort of creative superpower as a tribe, I think that's it. I, I think our work has always sort of tended towards abstraction. Uh, so if, if traditional design is sort of about look and what we've done is largely about the feel, I think that means that we're always asking why. Uh, and I think that means we're often providing direction to other designers and people that we work with. And I think that'll be important uh, in the future. You know, I also think that we gravitate towards systems. You know, we, obviously details are important and we care about them. Uh, but we're always looking at things in, in sort of bigger contexts. So we're predicated on caring about cohesion 
rather than sort of simple consistency. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing that will will help in the future as well. You know, I think we're strategic by design. I think we've always sort of understood, even when it was a sort of nascent profession, we've always understood that our success in selling it into businesses is is the success of the business. And I think that means that we've always tried to solve problems for people. We've always tried to create opportunities for brands and we've always cared about driving results for business. And I think that's why, you know, as, as companies have sort of gone all in on design thinking, you've started to see more and more of us rise to the C-suite and have this sort of nirvana seat at the table thing that we've always sort of had a, had an obsession about. And I think we're we're just sort of ambitious and our roles have always been changing a lot. Um, and I think that, you know, you can just sort of look at the way titles have changed over time from UX to product design to service design uh, and everything in between. And I think uh, we're always on the lookout for what's next and how we can sort of better position ourselves. Yeah, Dan, the, the early pioneers in the field, you know, people like ourselves who have been around since the dot-com or certainly Web 2.0 and earlier uh, time period. In my experience, most of us are not trained designers. Um, it's it's almost more likely to find a liberal arts degree than a design degree. Now, by contrast, there's been a huge explosion in UX training recently. And the training I would almost call more technical than anything else, for lack of a better word. It's not, you know, I was trained as a thinker um, in, in undergraduate and graduate school. And more recent training for folks is is more task-based in nature um, as opposed to thinking-based. And I have some concerns about how that's going to translate for these younger or newer to the field folks as we move into a world of smartware and automation. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that topic. I think you're bang on. I, I think, and to my mind, that, that's why whenever I see policymakers talk about STEM and, and going all in on engineering and technology degrees, they're fucking up the, yes. you know, the job market of the future. You know, we Amen. need more. If we preach, brother. I mean, we, we need more. We need more arts. We need more liberal arts, not less, because that's the, you know, the critical thinking, uh, creative direction. Those are going to be the ways that we future-proof ourselves down the road. And I think I think we absolutely need more of that, not less. Yeah, I think that was uh, both of those comments uh, resonate with me, especially Dirk. The sort of liberal arts influencing how sort of early design for the internet, what, how, how that approach happened and the critical thinking required, and then sort of the tactical nature of a lot of design training now, which is just whatever X corporation wants you to crank out, you can, you know, be the extension of the computer, right? Like you're the human who makes the computer do what it needs to do. That's dangerous in my opinion. So Daniel, there, there are a number of tech trends that I, I know you've been thinking about. Could you dig into those a little bit and your perspective on how they might shape uh, our, our future jobs? Sure. I, I think there are two big ones, really. Uh, and this is something that uh, Derp and I spoke a lot about uh, when we were in Norway together last September with, with other lunatics and rogues and uh, <laughs> designer types. And really, I think at a high level, it's that 
ethics scandals are fucking running amok uh, in the in the tech world today. You know, from from dark UX uh, tarnishing our reputation as a community, the sort of ongoing regulation that's happening in Europe and Canada and influencing policymakers in the U.S. I think those are all big, big factors. I don't think we've had our Hiroshima moment yet. You know, where when the atom bomb happened, that caused physics professionals to to really set back and think about what they were doing. It caused science writ large to do the same. And despite all all these scandals from Tesla to Uber to Facebook, we just haven't had that moment yet. We haven't had our Picard hoisted thoroughly, uh, and that will happen. Dan, do you have a hypothesis of what that moment might be like? You know, some some likely manifestations of that? that. That would be really interesting if you do. You know what? Privacy is still too ephemeral, so that's not going to be the vector around it. I think it will be the Hiroshima example is is telling because I think it I think it's going to take real harm at scale uh, for us to to really sort of be taken aback enough to really deal with the uh, the philosophical ramifications of what we do. Hmm. Yourself, what, what do you think? I don't have a hypothesis of what that moment will be. I mean, there's the things that have happened in the past that seem to go down the path are times when, you know, like the Ukrainian power system has been hijacked mm-hmm. as an example. Like it, it feels like it'll be something down that path where it's almost at a, at the national level of, of country versus country in ways direct or, um, or not. But I, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it um, specifically, so I don't have like a, a compelling suggestion on that one. Yeah, John, have you given any thought to that? Yeah, I worry that we're missing these moments as they happen. I mean, you talk about, um, or we've talked about in the past, just uh, things like, you know, Tesla's automated cars or, you know, the recent Facebook scandal or, you know, as, as Dirk mentioned, the U- Ukrainian power grid. I, I think we're probably not reflecting enough on on these problems as they are happening right underneath our noses. And if there is a Hiroshima uh, moment that's that's coming, I'm afraid we're going to miss it for all of the distraction that is just uh, endemic to the information overload slash news cycle that we're living in. Self-reflection as whether it's as a society or as an industry, I, I think we're we're losing that and we're being drawn into this world of, hey, what's what's the next buzzy news item? I don't know. I worry that we're too distracted to uh, to realize when it's happening. Yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong. Uh and then I think you know the other the other sort of big categorical thing that's happening that that is clearly the elephant in the room that's probably brought us all together is that AI is obviously going to change our ways of working uh, and how we define our professional value. I think sophisticated algorithms are going to affect creative workers in similar ways that that robots and automation have affected manufacturing. I think Dirk sort of talked about this before, but the you know. What automation and algorithms are good at is contending with repetitive tasks. Uh, so, so I think everything that we were just saying about, you know, sort of task-oriented education, that's not going to help us down the road because those are the those are the things that are going to get automated first and foremost. So uh, we've got to start thinking more about. 
creativity as curation. And I think those two things are going to become increasingly synonymous with each other. Uh, and I think that'll play out in a lot of different ways, whether that's designers having a role in supplying better training data or better visualization, the structure of algorithms or creating interfaces for AI. Uh, I think we're going to have to have a role in improving those strategic outcomes. And I think that's going to cause designers to themselves change AI. I think right now, AI is almost exclusively the domain of, of engineers. And that's led to a lot of fucking shitty bias that we're going to have to be called in to help fix, I think. I totally agree with that, Dan. So um, with those sort of themes underlying the current state of UX plus technology, uh, let's say, let's dig into a little bit what we think some future jobs maybe. So Dan, why don't we start with you and then uh, proceed around the virtual table with some of our other ideas? I love virtual tables. Um, I, you know, I think the the first thing following on from, from what we were just talking about, I think we're going to see an evolution in the role of people that are practitioners of data visualization. I think they'll start to further specialize and whether they, they take on roles of like AI visualizer or algorithm designer or whatever it's going to be called, I, I think they're going to be roles for designers to help clarify uh, and shine a light on what is effectively a big black box right now. And I think that's going to happen because of legislation. I think it's going to happen because of consumer protection concerns. I think it's going to be driven by corporate social responsibility, a want from some companies and brands to differentiate themselves from their competitors. I think exposing the inner workings of how AI actually works is something that engineering has failed at to date. And I think finding ways to make that understandable and uh, not necessarily palatable, but making it clearer, even if it just scratches the surface and is largely guesswork, I think that's going to be critical in the future. And I think the designers that sort of take on that role will upskill themselves in data science. Uh, and I think they're going to get paid a shed load of fucking money. Yeah, that's uh, I, I, I very <laughs> I'm very interested in that. I don't know if uh, if I can upskill to uh, data science, but that that certainly fascinates me. Dan, make the um, data visualizer a little bit more concrete for me, because you mentioned that currently it's it's more general purpose it's more broad and the idea is that we'll be more specific so what is a data visualizer today and and then you know when when you talk about the specific applications that they might have later what what more concretely is that as well just to really really put this in a light yeah well i, I think in in some respects you know there there's definitely a a group of visual designers that have historically specialized in data visualization, right? So your, your Edward Tufties of the world, uh, Manuel Lima, uh, a good friend of mine from, from back in my agency days, and people that have really excelled at it's sort of taking public information and making it more clear. So Tufty and some of the work that he's done are with like NASA, the Challenger explosion and, and things like that. I think 
where the specialization will, will happen for those people is that to really have that same sort of impact and to bring that same level of clarity to AI, they're going to have to think far more rigorously about data uh, and and have a greater vernacular, shared vernacular with engineers. So I think that'll be part of it. I see. I see. Dirk, what's your take on on a, a possible future design job? Yeah, I mean, for me, the one that I think about a lot is much more broad um, than than Dan's example. And it's really the shift from design to creative direction. And to sort of make that more concrete, there's I'll talk about sort of the evolution over the years. So when I started out, you know, back in the late 90s, if we were going to, for example, make an icon for a logo or a website or, or something, the first thing we would do is we'd have a meeting and we would talk about it. We'd brainstorm it okay, we need an icon for invention. What could that be? You know, and you spend an hour in a meeting, people talking about it, you go away and, you know, you build up a lot of hours um, trying to figure out what should the shape for an icon be. Today, if you want to do an icon, to figure out the shape of the icon, you go to Google and you Google invention icon and you'll get a bajillion examples. And within seconds, you can identify this one or two are the most prevalent. So are probably the shapes that we should use. And you can review different styles. You can see those icons implemented in lots of different ways. And so you can not only pick a a shape, a thing, you can even have a style associated with it, a way of showing it. And in the earlier model, you you would have had that meeting, more time, make a decision, yada, yada, yada. And then making it from hand in a style that was custom and unique to that moment and made from scratch now today, the whole process from I need an icon for invention and a designer fabricating an icon for invention is under an hour. It's remarkable as opposed to double digit hours from an agency billing perspective, you know, uh, what's going on 20 years ago now. In the future, the model will be one where you, the creative director, will put into the machine the the um, characteristics you want, not only that it's an icon for invention, but should be a certain style within a certain style guide of the company that you're working for, or if you're having to come up with your own different, you know, different words, different um, associations. And then the machine will spit out a bunch of icons that are guided by the data you put in custom to yourself that the computer has made instantaneously in real time and you'll just be plucking one out right there. And so it will take minutes. And those it's not only that it takes minutes instead of an hour, but you're getting something that's, that's high quality, um, highly custom, and all done by the machine. And your job is making sure the machine is, quote unquote, programmed properly, and then having the, the good taste, the good sense, either yourself or if you're you know, making it more of a, a team thing, of, of picking the right thing out. So... It, to me, it's, it's a good concrete example at a very granular level of how the creation stuff is is going to be going away. The machines will be doing the creation in in large quantity. Our job is just going to be making sure they're doing it right and then making smart choices around which of the exemplars the machine creates that, that we want to implement. Yeah, and that in that example, you're elevated from, you know, uh, whatever design position into, as you said, creative direction. You're, you're effectively a studio head and your studio is comprised of AI, right? 
in in that example. And that that's really that's really interesting because it does shorten the path if that is your ambition to uh, to lead a design studio in that manner. That does shorten the path to that position, and in fact, makes that the the basic entry point for designers because that other type of work, that technical work, which maybe is getting overemphasized right now, and and could go away. Dan, do you, do you think that vision is too aggressive, or are, are you seeing sort of that specific manifestation coming as well? Well, I, I think you know it, it's interesting. The last time we we spoke. Uh, I think I mentioned a instance where in one of our Asian neighbors, there was a, a company that basically employed a algorithm as a creative director and gave a brief to that creative director, that AI, as well as a human creative director and, and his teams. And then they basically uh, took the work that was that was done from both and put them in front of a large audience and put them in front of executives uh, that, that were responsible for the brief. And the execs loved, memory serves, the execs loved the one that came from the AI, but the more robust audiences preferred the one that came from the, the human creative director. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so it's happening, right? In fits and starts, this stuff is already happening. All right. So I'm going to jump in with, with one of my jobs of the future. Um, I, I think there's going to be a need for a designer type role as a, as a forensic designer. And, and what I mean by that is somebody who can unmask the fakery that will no doubt explode as it becomes a lot easier to, I don't know, map people's faces to, um, to video, to simulate voices. So it sounds like somebody said something they didn't. We already know it's easy to doctor photographs and to uh, uh, change documents and all too easy to manipulate people using uh, all kinds of news items, be they uh, text or uh, be they uh, sort of fake events or what have you. I, I think there's going to be a design position that actually works to deconstruct and reveal what these elements are, what these dark patterns are. In fact, we probably already have that need and, and are just... Uh, blissfully unaware of it. John, what yeah. would this designer do? That's that's interesting because that would sound like something maybe a machine would would be, you know, brought to bear to root out those those things. Yeah, I think so so I was basing this this thought on the way sort of in forensic investigators will look at specific aspects of photographs to see if they were doctored. And I realized also just in, in the process of my career, just looking at certain sensitive documents and sort of realizing, hey, I know how you can go in and change these things. And, and other folks at the table at the time were, were un, you know, completely unaware that, yes, you can go in and change the uh, files in this manner. Uh, just having that that knowledge, whether it's it's sort of uh, practically applied later 
or whether it's it's a matter of saying, hey, we need to scrub all the or or go through all these files and look for these specific, you know, kinds of repetition in photographs that would be insignias of of sort of false or doctored photographs. Someone who has knowledge of basically bad acting in design, whether it's knowledge of dark UX, whether it's knowledge of document manipulation, sort of the flip side of, uh, or, or uh, what that fellow in uh, Catch Me If You Can, right? <laughs> he could be the, uh, an example. He was a, uh, a fraudster who uh, pulled off all these amazing cons uh, and then sort of flipped his role and, and became a security consultant later. That's what I was picturing as, uh, as, as I noticed these dark UX patterns become more prevalent. And unfortunately, people just not being aware of them uh, in the same way that a designer is, right? Because we know you don't have to be sent down that particular you know, pattern, which is going to make you give up all of your email addresses just because you want to sign <laughs> up for a social network, right? Like we know that when we're looking at it. My parents or, you know, Joe Public may not. I think the other thing that you're touching on is is rooted in some of the really troubling things that we've seen AI already have a hand in helping to produce. So from from deep fakes, you know, sort of uh, pasting celebrity faces onto porn figures uh, to Adobe, Adobe of all companies creating uh, a tool which is basically what you, what you were describing with, with people saying something that they didn't were based on a few snippets of someone's voice uh, with a new tool from Adobe. You'll be able to get them to say whatever you type into the, into the program essentially. And I think you're, I think you're right. I think like with any sort of uh, digital manipulation, people that are in the know about how stuff gets produced will sort of be able to help ferret that out. And I think Dirk is also right in that there will be aspects of that that will itself be a batch process, be a repetitive task uh, that the people responsible for this kind of design forensics will, will have to use AI tools to, to help with, sort of using AI to catch AI, as it were, using propagandists to fight propagandists. Right. So... Dan, I think I think we have time for one more job of the future. I, I know you had a uh, a pretty good list. Uh, could you enlighten us as to another one of your potential future jobs for creatives? Sure. So I, you know, I think one of the things that we see often in uh, very large companies is that when they when they really care about an issue, they will add a, a niche role to the C suite to show that they care. So, you know, in the, same way, in the same way that some companies have roles like chief diversity officers or uh, chief privacy officers, uh, I think in the near future, uh, we may very well see the emergence of a chief ethics officer. And, and it's a little bit of what you were saying. I think it'll be their, their job, their main role will be to imagine uh, what our, our friend Dan Hahn calls negative externalities, which, as you said earlier, is basically bad actors gaming the system. And I think it'll be this person's job to imagine those negative scenarios and help say to, to the CEO and the rest of the company, no, don't do this or do this in a different way. And I think uh, in some respects, those guys will 
basically become scapegoats no, for no. When bad actors when bad actors do have their way with with systems and with products. And I think as a result, they'll basically get paid uh, hazard pay or, or combat pay uh, because of that fragility. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everyone, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Dan, it's been wonderful having you on the show again. How can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, I'm Dan C. Harvey on Twitter, uh, and that's probably the quickest way to get a hold of me. Excellent. So that's it for episode 261 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Neumeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time.